Well, since all of Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18 this morning. That's on page 1002 in the Bibles provided. Page 1002 in the Bibles provided. Have you ever wondered why Christmas is filled with so much red? Red bows, uh, red sweaters, red ornaments. Uh, I, I have an idea of why it should be filled with red. Uh, it's, it's not because uh, red's a great complement to green. Uh, it's, it's not because necessarily in the 1930s, Coca-Cola hired a, a man to dress in a, a red suit and uh, put out their red can of um, soft drink, soda pop, soda pop, Coke, whatever the proper term is for our area. Um, red is, is also uh, not associated with Christmas because of the, the mythical pagan sun god. No, red should be associated with Christmas because the cradle of our Lord Jesus Christ ultimately points to the cross where he shed his red blood for the forgiveness of our sins. If you look at the Bible and read through its story and telling of Christmas, you see that everywhere the Bible connects the cradle to the cross. The cross was actually the goal of the cradle. Jesus was born to die, and that was the greatest gift ever given to the world. J.I. Packer has rightly said that the Christmas message is that there is hope for ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. Last week, we began a three-part series on Christmas. We are setting aside dictionary definitions and cultural customs to consider what the Bible says about Christmas. After all, Christmas is about the coming of God the Son in the flesh. And the Bible gives the definitive explanation for Christmas. In this series, we're not just looking at the events concerning the coming of the Son of God. We're not just interested in the facts about Christmas. We want to know their meaning what they mean for our faith and for our future. So last week we turned to consider Christmas from the Gospel of John. And from there we learned that it meant that God the Son came to earth to bring grace to the guilty. This morning we turned to the book of Hebrews. Though we don't know who wrote this letter, we know why he wrote. At the very end of his letter, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, the author tells us that he was writing to give his brothers in the Lord a word of exhortation. So this letter is actually an earnest warning and an encouragement. You see, the the congregation that he was writing to, those who first received this letter, they were enduring Roman persecution, either under Claudius or Nero. Uh, this, This battered group of believers, they were being tempted to turn back to Judaism. Judaism was a protected religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, You could practice Judaism without fear of punishment. That was not true of Christianity because Christians believe that Jesus is the supreme Lord of all. That Christ is the King of Kings. So the Christians receiving this letter were being tempted to leave Jesus behind and go back to the safety 
of Judaism. I wonder if you are looking for safety as a Christian. Uh, Perhaps you are looking at the current cost of being a real and genuine Christian. A Christian who believes in the exclusivity of Jesus, that he's the only Savior. A Christian who keeps the ethics of Jesus. Ethics which this world finds to be oppressive and even dangerous. You you might want to consider reading through the letter of Hebrews in the new year. Uh, This is what he says. Don't look back and don't go back. Instead, look to Jesus, for he is your help and hope of grace and glory. In fact, that's what he says in our passage today. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, the writer to the Hebrews essentially says that God the Son came to earth to get you to heaven. God the Son had to suffer in the flesh to save and sanctify you so that you could stand with Him in glory. In fact, because Jesus suffered, He can help you when you are suffering temptation. See if you agree. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The teaching of this text is that God the Son took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus suffered to save and sanctify all those who believe in him. If I had to put the rest of this sermon in a simple sentence, this would be it. God the Son took on flesh to get you to glory. God the Son took on flesh to get you to glory. That's Christmas according to the book of Hebrews. There should be a full outline of the rest of the sermon provided there in your bulletin that I hope will help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point, that Jesus suffered to bring you to glory. Read verse 10 again. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now with verse 10, we see here that we're dropping into the middle of a sustained argument. The writer tells us that it was fitting, that is, that it was appropriate for Jesus to suffer. But, but why is this fitting? Why is it appropriate? Well, it's fitting because of who Jesus is and who he became 
to save us. Chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews actually tells us who he is. As we thought about last week, Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. Jesus is fully divine, and he existed before he took on flesh and blood. And so to make that point, in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, the writer proclaims that God the Son was superior to the angels, which is what makes the opening of chapter 2 so astounding. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 9 tell us that we have a great salvation because Jesus, the one who was superior to the angels, was actually made lower than the angels. The one who was above came to help those who were below. The one who was fully God, without any loss to his deity, became fully man. As John Wesley said in one of his hymns, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Jesus, he came to taste death for everyone who would believe. If he was to taste death for men and women like us, he had to become a man like us. That's why it was fitting. The superior son became the lowly son to bring loads of sons to glory. And this was the father's plan. The writer of the Hebrews tells us here in verse 10, sovereign wisdom planned the salvation of sinners in perfect accord with God's unassailable and unalterable holiness and our desperate needs. Both God the Father and His Son Jesus are actually in view here in verse 10. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that God the Father had a goal. He purposed to bring many sons to glory. And carefully note the language here. In verse 9, the writer of the Hebrews said that Jesus tasted death for everyone. But here in verse 10, he tells us that many, not everyone or all, but many sons are brought to glory. Many sons are brought to glory. Though Jesus' death was sufficient for the salvation of every individual in the world, it is only efficient for those who put their trust in Him. Do you trust in Jesus for your salvation? As we thought about last week from John chapter 1, verse 12, all who receive Jesus, that is, all who believe in His name, have the right to become children of God. So have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Through His Son, God the Father is determined to bring many sons to glory. That means that God the Father wanted to see them come to enjoy eternity with Him. An eternity that's free from depravity, from decay, and even from death. But to accomplish that goal, we're learning here that the Son had to suffer. Do you see how the cross was actually the goal of the cradle? That's what it takes to get you to glory the suffering of the Son. Glory was God's first goal for the first man. But Adam fell short of that goal of glory by his sin in the garden. But Jesus came, the second Adam, the scriptures call him, the second Adam came to get you to that goal. You see that Jesus is called here the founder of their salvation. Uh, some translations refer to him as the source or even the pioneer of our salvation. The idea is that Jesus paved the way for our salvation. Jesus himself went through suffering into glory in order to bring us into glory. But the path of your glory, as I said, has been paved by Jesus' suffering. We're even told that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now don't misunderstand here. Jesus was not in any way morally flawed. 
That's not what the writer of the Hebrews means by making him perfect. No, the writer of the Hebrews knows that Jesus was actually perfectly righteous, that he was sinless. That's exactly what he'll say in just a couple of chapters. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, there he says that Jesus was without sin. The word perfect here is teleo. Uh, We get our word for telos, as in telos and goal, from this word. Jesus is perfected in the sense in that going through suffering, he accomplishes the goal of bringing us to glory. God couldn't get you to glory without Jesus getting through the process of suffering. And in fact, this past week, one one brother in the congregation told me that that this idea of perfecting something exists in the legal tradition. Uh, So for example, in order to finalize a loan document, these loan documents, they have to be perfected. They need to get to the right signatures. They need to get uh, those signatures taking place in the right uh, witnesses to reach completion or perfection. That doesn't mean there's actually anything wrong with those loan documents. It simply means they need to reach their telos, their designed end and goal, going through the right requirements. That's what we're looking at here. In order to get us to glory, Jesus had to go through the requirement of suffering. God the Father knew that it was fitting to do this. It was appropriate to do this, for there was no other way to get his people to glory. Now just stop and think about this for a moment. God the Father, the one that our text says, for whom and by whom all things exist, so loved you that he sent his one and only most beloved son to suffer for you. And not only that, but God the Son so loved you, dear Christian, that he was willing to take on human flesh and suffer for you. He knew what we read earlier in Isaiah 53, the suffering that was coming. I'm guessing that you're willing to put up with a lot for the people that you love. But there is another thing, it's another thing altogether to actually suffer for them when it is they who should be suffering for their own foolishness and sin. The Son came to suffer for the sins of of many sons and daughters of God, so that he might get them to glory. Beloved, do not drift away from the love of God and this salvation in Jesus. You must pay much closer attention to this salvation. Holding on to the one who suffered for you will help you make it through all of your suffering so that you reach glory. Your goals in this life are often, too often, lower than what God's goal is for you. His goal for you is glory, in glory. You you might want ease and comfort and wealth and prestige in this life, but what does God want for you? He wants glory for you, unending joy in His eternal presence. And so often we have to follow in the way of our Savior, going through suffering until we reach glory. But Jesus has paved that way for us, and so we hold on to Him. Jesus suffered to bring you to glory. And while he suffered, he actually stood in solidarity with you. That's what verses 11 through 13 teach us. Jesus suffered to stand with you. Read Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 13 again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. There is an emphasis of oneness or unity in these verses. We see it right away there in verse 11. 
we can see there is one source for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. The one who sanctifies is a reference to Jesus. The ones who are sanctified are Christians, those who trust in Jesus. To be sanctified means to be set apart. Think of what the priests in the Old Testament in Israel went through. Uh, They were sanctified, they were set apart for their service unto God as priests. So in Exodus 29, there was a special ceremony with particular rituals which set the priests apart and distinguished them for service unto God. And what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus and those that Jesus sanctifies, that is, those he sets apart for salvation, all have one source. Who is that one source? Well, that one source is none other than God the Father. We have the same Father as our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can call God our Father. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus even teaches us to pray to God as our Father. Go ahead and relate to God as your Father, Jesus tells his disciples. We can go home to our Father's glory like Jesus did. Now, we didn't come to have the same Father in the same way as Jesus. After all, God the Son was eternally begotten of God. He was never created and He was always God's Son. We, on the other hand, were sinners and destined for destruction. We were spiritual orphans outside of God's family. So we needed to be sanctified, set apart for salvation, and brought into the family of God. Since we have the same source, the same Father, then Jesus is our brother. That's what the three Old Testament quotations in verses 12 to 13 communicate. They all have this family emphasis. The the first quotation there in verse 12, you see it? It comes from actually Psalm 22, verse 22. It's a messianic song. You'll remember that it's a messianic song when you remember how it opens. It opens with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words that Jesus quoted as he hung on the cross. But Psalm 22, it follows this interesting trajectory. This trajectory of a suffering Messiah to the rescued Messiah to the ruling and reigning Messiah. Isn't that the pathway that Jesus took? He went through suffering to reach glory. And the, the second half of Psalm 22, particularly with, beginning with the verse that the writer of the Hebrews quotes here, speaks of the Messiah praising God and sharing his victory with his brothers. As you are united to Jesus by faith, you come into Jesus' family and share in Jesus' victory. Now the next two Old Testament quotations there in verse 13 are from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. This text from Isaiah also has a familial emphasis, and it also comes out of a messianic context. Just think of what happens in Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, those chapters on the outside of Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord promised that he would give the people of Israel a sign, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That comes right before Isaiah chapter 8. And then a chapter later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read these words. For to us a a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All this looks forward to Jesus. And the reason why the writer of the Hebrews has quoted the Isaiah 8 text is because God's people in that context, in Isaiah chapter 8, were in the midst of persecution from neighboring nations. Like the writer of the Hebrews audience, they were facing affliction. 
Isaiah as they're suffering persecution in the surrounding nations. He responds saying, despite all that we're suffering, I'm going to trust in God. I and the children that God has given me are going to trust in God. Isaiah, he was speaking on behalf of his household. Now remember, the writer of the Hebrews are going through this persecution and suffering from the Roman government. And so by using this quotation, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look, just like Isaiah, Jesus claims us as his family. Jesus trusted in his father all the way through his suffering, and now he stands with the children of God, the children that God has given him through their suffering. Like Isaiah said for his children, so Jesus says for us, Father, we trust you. Jesus suffered in the flesh to stand with you in suffering. Now, did you notice a particularly sweet phrase in verse 11? What do you think is the sweetest phrase in verse 11? Before you can answer, I'm going to tell you mine. I'm so excited about this. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus' family is pretty big, and it's filled with some pretty big sinners. Many of them are here this morning. If your family is big enough, there are members of your family that you are tempted to be ashamed of. Maybe you don't visit them. Maybe you don't write to them or call them. Maybe you avoid them at family gatherings and reunions. They might have their quirks and idiosyncrasies. They might have struggles with addiction. They might look and dress differently than everyone else. They might be narcissistic and self-absorbed. They might be gossips. They might be depressed. They might just lack tact and discernment. And you might be tempted to be ashamed of them. Or maybe you are that family member that everyone seems to be ashamed of. Did you know that all of those kinds of people are a part of Jesus' family? We're not all the same. Many of us are foolish and selfish. We are all fallen and flawed. We're wrestling with sins and sometimes stumbling. We can be an embarrassment. But with all of our faults and flaws, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Despite all of your filthiness, Jesus remains faithful to you. Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with you. Jesus is not afraid to say to God the Father, this motley crew is with me, and you know it, because I laid down my life for them. I suffered for them. Your family may be ashamed of you. Your spouse may be ashamed of you. Your parents may be ashamed of you. Your coworkers may be ashamed of you. But if you belong to Jesus, if you are one of God's children, then Jesus is not ashamed of you. Christians, since Jesus is not ashamed to stand with you, do not be ashamed to stand with Jesus. Since Jesus suffered for you, do not be afraid to suffer for him. Jesus, your elder brother, suffered to bring you to glory. Jesus, your elder brother, suffered in the flesh to stand with you. Jesus, your elder brother, 
suffered the pains of death to deliver you from eternal death. That's what we learn in verses 14 and 15. Read verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The first half of verse 14 there explains what was necessary to deliver God's children. Since those God planned to save were flesh and blood, God the Son had to partake of flesh and blood. And that phrase, flesh and blood, is a, is a Hebrew way of saying your outward flesh and your inward blood summarize the totality of your human being. And as we'll think about more in a bit, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, if you just look down there, it tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. God the Son took on the fullness of human nature, yet without sin. This was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to take on human nature. It was essential and indispensable to your salvation. Early church father Gregory Nazanzian was right when he wrote, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Friends, Jesus assumed human nature so that he could heal humans like us. Man sinned. And if sinful man was to be delivered from eternal death, then a sinless man would have to deliver them. Given that every flesh and blood man, since Adam was full of sin, God the Son had to take on flesh and blood to be the sinless man. And the writer of the Hebrews, he further unpacks the purpose of God the Son taking on flesh and blood when he says that the Son had to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Remember, the devil first ruined man's hope of glory by leading man into sin and thus into death. For the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. We take the devil's power too lightly these days. What foolishness it is to allow a display to be erected in the honor of the devil anywhere. The devil is dangerous. There is a reason why the Apostle Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In John 12, 31 and 14, 30, Jesus identified Satan as the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul echoed the Savior's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said that Satan is now at work in this world. And the Apostle John declares in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The Bible teaches, as you know, that God has power over life and death. We see that in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So what does the writer to the Hebrews mean by saying that the devil has the power of death? He means that the devil has the power over death in a, in a secondary sense. The devil has the power of death in the sense that, that he came alongside man, he tempted him to sin, and in doing so, the devil lured man into and under the power of death. You see, the devil, he's in the business of selling sin. And so he's in the business of bringing men under death. And sadly, he's a very good salesman. But the Lord Jesus 
has destroyed the devil's power. By Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus has broken the devil's power. By Jesus' death and resurrection, he has rendered the devil powerless. Beloved, you know that this was promised from the very beginning, right? Immediately after man's fall into sin, God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day a son, his son, would crush the head of the serpent, thus destroying his power. And because Jesus conquered death in his resurrection of the grave, he can share that power of eternal life with God's children. God's children are no longer subject to the punishment of eternal death because Jesus suffered that punishment for them on the cross. As John Owen has said so beautifully, the obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation was removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. See, Jesus removed the power of death that you deserve to suffer because of your sin. By him suffering that for you, he's broken Satan's power. He's taken those instruments of power out of his hands. Because death is no longer due to the sins of Jesus' people, because the punishment has been paid, Jesus has removed all of the devil's power to wage that death over us. Death and the devil's power is only destroyed through a death. That's why John Owen entitled his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's why Jesus had to be made man to taste death for us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the children of God, they're set free from the power of the devil and the panic that eternal death brings. That's what verse 15 teaches us. As we know, our world is thoroughly afraid of death. A very famous filmmaker once said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. No longer do we talk about funerals or memorial services. Those terms are inescapably linked to death. Now the proper term is the celebration of life. And it is good and right that we celebrate a person's life, but we cannot wish away death by changing the terms. Only Christ's death provides the victory over eternal death. Many fear death because it amounts to a loss of control. But friend, you never had control over the span of your life to begin with. That was an illusion, probably from the devil. He loves to blind us and think us that we have more control than we really do. I mean, how often are we lured into sin? We think, oh, no, I can control this. I can stop at any moment. And yet we succumb to its power. Christian, do not, you do not need to fear death because we know that Jesus, he's been in control the whole time. Many fear death because they do not know what is next. But believers do. It's bliss and glory for the people of God. On our deathbeds, a Christian can say, he can follow the example of the Savior and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For those in Christ, death is no longer a fearful enemy. It is, as Richard Sibbs once said, a grim porter who leads us into a stately palace. Christian, do not let death bind you in fear anymore. Jesus has disarmed death's power. The only way to fight the fear of death is with faith in the one who conquered death and set us free from eternal death. Because Jesus got up from his grave, he will raise you up from yours on the last day. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57. Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, because of Christ's death and resurrection, you're no longer a slave to sin, and therefore will not suffer eternal death. Jesus has set you free. Since it was humanity that needed to be delivered, it is humanity that God the Son took on. Since humanity needed to be delivered from death and the devil, Jesus suffered death in the flesh. Jesus suffered to deliver you. Jesus also suffered to save and sanctify you. This is what we learn from Hebrews 2, verses 16 to 18. Follow along as I read verses 16 to 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 16 returns us to the beginning of the argument that the author has been making to his audience. The one who was above the angels came to help those who were below the angels. That's been the argument since the beginning of chapter 2. Jesus didn't take on the nature of angels because he wasn't sent to help angels. He was sent to help us. He took on human nature because we need help. We need a saving and sanctifying help. And that's just what we have in Jesus. Jesus came, you see, there to help the offspring of Abraham. The New Testament teaches us that those who are the true offspring of Abraham are those who have faith like Abraham. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4 and in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 where Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, offspring of Abraham. Do you believe in God's promises and his saving power like Abraham? Are you one of Abraham's offspring that Jesus has come to help? The central way in which Jesus came to help us is found there in verse 17. Jesus came and took on humanity to serve as our high priest and as our sacrificial substitute. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect because only a human could serve as the high priest. That's how God set up the system. And remember what high priests did in ancient Israel. They, they put on their priestly garments, which actually had stones on them. On those stones were inscribed the names of the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel. They would walk into God's presence and God would see those names. The priest was representing the people to God. He carried the people of God into the most holy place. And then he offered the blood of a sacrifice before God on the mercy seat. The blood of the innocent took away the sins of the guilty in the sight of God. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says it like this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest had to be one of the people in order to represent the people and bring before God a sacrifice for the people. But of course Jesus is a high priest of a different quality and caliber. He didn't have any sins like all of the high priests before him. He was sinless. He was a, you see verse 17, he was a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you realize that those terms, those two terms, are how God actually describes himself in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. 
When the Lord passed before Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Mercy and faithfulness. At the moment that the writer of the Hebrews right here is proclaiming Jesus' humanity, notice he's also affirming his divinity. Our Savior was fully God and fully man. Our Savior had to be the God-man. John Stott put it like this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Think about that. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for men and puts himself where only men deserve to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Jesus, the God-man, is the most merciful high priest who has ever appeared. He shows mercy to sinners. He doesn't give them what their sins deserve even though they have sinned against him. He faithfully served the offspring of Abraham and he also faithfully served God. He offered the sacrifice necessary to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. You see, because of our sin, we have incurred the penalty of eternal death in hell. Because we have sinned against the infinite and eternal God, the only appropriate punishment would be one which is infinite and eternal. And only the God-man could bear that punishment. So how is it that you can be saved and the just demands of God's wrath against our sins be satisfied? The answer is right there in verse 17. Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, it's a big word, but it simply means that God's wrath was satisfied. It was removed because the appropriate sacrifice was offered. Jesus was not only the servant, but he was also the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the people. The offering that Jesus brought was himself. He was, as John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we read from Isaiah 53 earlier in the service. Consider these words from Isaiah 53, verse 5 again. As you hear them, listen for how they describe Jesus bearing the punishment for our sins, Him being the substitute in our place. Isaiah 53, 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Note carefully who Jesus is serving. He's serving us. And he's serving God the Father. It's not the devil that Jesus is serving. He's serving God the Father and us. And since Jesus helps, since Jesus dies and delivers flesh and blood, those who have faith like Abraham, he took on every aspect of our humanity, served as our high priest before God, and offered the sacrifice necessary to pay for our sins. There's nothing left for us to pay because Jesus paid it all. Friend, Perhaps you are here this morning and you are aware of your sinfulness before the Holy God. For there is no way for you to enter into His glorious presence apart from His one and only Son. This is why Jesus came, fully God and fully man, to live the life that you've not lived, to die the death that your sins deserve. That's what He endured on the cross. And yet three days later, He was raised from the grave, vindicated, proving to us all that God accepted 
his high priestly sacrifice on our behalf. And now all of those who turn from their sins and trust in him can be set free from eternal death and hell. Friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and believe upon him for your salvation. Believe that God came to rescue you. Jesus came to help you and save you. And Jesus, he helps us as well as he helps us in the process of sanctification. Not only did Jesus deliver us from the punishment of sin, we see there in verse 17, but Jesus also delivers us from the power of sin in verse 18. Jesus is the tower of help for the tempted. Notice what verse 18 says, because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You know that Jesus was tempted, right? Go back to Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 and you'll see that the devil tempted Jesus. One of the devil's temptations was for Jesus to take a shortcut to glory. He, he told Jesus, the devil told Jesus, look, I will give you the kingdoms of this world and their glory if you would bow down and worship me. Glory without suffering was tempting. But Jesus resisted Satan's temptations. In Hebrews 4.15, we read that we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has been tempted, as one brother said, not in every particular we face, but in the principles of every temptation we face. Jesus has been tempted in the principles of every possible temptation you face. And Jesus resisted. Where you laid down in the face of of temptation and lost Jesus stood up and won that's why Jesus can help you when you're tempted you don't have the power to say no to temptation all on your own but Jesus has power to help Jesus has felt the full force of temptation and he pushed it away Jesus can help you when you're tempted to envy others Jesus can help you when you're tempted to lash out in anger. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to look and lust. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to seize and seduce. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to deny your sex or despise your calling. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to drink and become drunk. Jesus can tempt you, help you when you are tempted to lie and to cheat. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to greed and gambling. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to dishonor and disobey your parents. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to idleness and sloth. Jesus can help you when you're tempted to be selfish and insist on your own way. Beloved, Jesus can help you when you're tempted. Jesus imparts his power to his people so that they may resist sin's power. Jesus can help you resist the temptation to escape suffering and turn to the world for safety. Jesus can help you keep your heart set on God and glory. That is Jesus' goal. And he is going to get you there. And as we conclude, beloved, remember the message of Christmas according to Hebrews. God the Son came to stand with you and claim you as his own. God the Son came to deliver you from death and the devil's power. God the Son came to help you in temptation. God the Son came to offer the sacrifice necessary to pay for all of your sins. God the Son, He entered the cradle to take up His cross 
and shed his red blood in order that he might receive the crown of glory and give you one too. God the Son took on flesh to get you to glory. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinless perfection and sympathetic priest. Father, we pray and ask that you would draw our hearts ever closer to Christ now. To rest in him and trust in him. Father, would you save every erring soul here this morning? Would you keep us from drifting from Christ? And cling steadfastly to him. For your glory we pray. In Jesus name. Amen.